Right. Welcome or welcome back to another episode of the Investigating Pathways podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kulbir Tagger, who is a three-time founder, having founded three companies, including Bozo.com, Optomatic, and most recently, Zeus Living, which in my opinion is one of the coolest companies I've come across so far. It's essentially, uh, from my understanding, a corporate pro- property manager supported by tech. So uh, Kulbir, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Anav. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your origin story. So can you tell me briefly about your uh, your life as a kid? Uh, okay, yeah, life as a kid. So I grew up in London. Um, my dad's family was from Kenya. So I spent a few years in Kenya, Nairobi, then moved to London, and then pretty much kind of grew up in Southeast England. Um, my, my parents did separate when I was younger. Um, so I had a bit more of a, you know, single parent upbringing. Um, my mom was a travel agent. So despite, you know, not having tons of money, I got to travel a lot growing up. And I think that definitely uh, shaped who I am. And then um, I think maybe the other important thing was I, I ended up getting a scholarship to a private school um, in, in Southeast London. And so uh, I ended up getting lucky and getting, you know, a really good education that then set me up to go to Oxford and do all the other things that I've, I've done. Awesome. Um, I really quickly want to touch on the first foray now that you've had into entrepreneurship, Boso.com. So first and foremost, can you tell me as a recent college grad, um, why'd you decide to be an entrepreneur in the first place? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I definitely didn't grow up wanting to be an entrepreneur. I would say that my, my sort of eyes were open to this path when I was 18. So I took a gap year. Um, so before university, I worked for Deutsche Bank for nine months, and then I went backpacking around the world for six months. And during that gap year, I actually met a, a fellow student, gap year student called Sachin Dougal, who was building computers and selling them in England, in London. And he'd been doing that since he was 15. And, you know, he, he'd seen a bit of success. And that was the first time where I was like, wait a second, oh, you don't just sort of have to go on this finance path or get a job, you can actually just start a business. And it never occurred to me that that was actually something that, you know, I could do. I didn't know much about startups. And then, um, you know, started just thinking of ideas, like what could be a good business idea and so on. And then at university, um, came up with that idea of like, well, look, students need a bunch of things that they buy, and then they they have to give them away or sell them afterwards because they no longer need them like textbooks and simple things like that. I was like, maybe there should be a marketplace for this. Uh, I'm sure there's people who have stuff to sell that I would want to buy and, and vice versa. So I think it was a gradual process where in my gap year, I, I sort of was exposed to it. Then I thought about it. And then the other big thing was at university. So I went to Oxford and it I wouldn't really say it's a super entrepreneurial place, like if you compare it to say Stanford. Um, <clears throat> and the culture um, is definitely very different. It's very sort of academic oriented, but um, someone started a student entrepreneurs club when I joined the university. And I, it was one of these things, I remember at Freshers' Fair, I signed up, I got an email and then I was like, oh, this looks cool. And, and then I joined, I applied to join the committee. And then that that was another sort of maybe turning point where I was like, I met a bunch of other students who were entrepreneurial. Um, Oxford opened up a business school. They had this annual conference called Silicon Valley Comes to Oxford. And so that's when I kind of got exposed to Silicon Valley. And then that's when the path started where I was like, wait a second, I can start something. Um, I understand or I want to learn about tech and I want to build websites. And then I sort of just jumped into it. Awesome. 
So now I'm curious, can you tell me, I know you ended up moving um, to the United States, right? A few years into uh, your entrepreneurial career. So can you tell me a little bit about that story? What was that process like? How did that lead to the building of your second company, Automatic, that entire thing? Yeah. So actually that, that entrepreneurs club that I mentioned, it was called Oxford Entrepreneurs. The guy who started it, his name is Bob Goodson. And he was the president of the society. And one year when this conference happened, Max Levchin flew over to Oxford, got to know Bob. And then I think a few months later, invited Bob to come out to San Francisco and join his incubator. It was called Midtown Doornail. It's the incubator that spawned Yelp. And so I was there, I was like, wait a second, that's really cool. Like San Francisco and tech and like Google was just emerging. And, and I was like, huh, I want to kind of do something similar. So Bob, in the summer of 2005, so it was about eight weeks before I had my finals exams, he invited a few of us to come and stay with him in San Francisco. So I flew out here. I remember it was a short trip, but he took us to the Google office he took me to Max's incubator in downtown San Francisco. We met a bunch of entrepreneurs. I met, Nav did I meet Naval Ravikant then? No, I don't think I did. But, um, and then I was just blown away by like the work culture in the Valley compared to what I'd seen in banking. I'd done an internship at that program. I was like, the emphasis is on productivity and like just simple things like not having to wear, you know, a suit to work. And um, it just seemed like Silicon Valley or tech or, or San Francisco just, had it worked out and this was the future. So at that point, you know, the seed was planted in my mind. I was like, one way or the other, I wanna get out there. I didn't really know how to do it. The next year at that same conference, I was the president and Ev Williams came down, um, the founder of Twitter. And I remember because I was the president of the student society, they invited me to the fancy dinner that they have after the conference. And I moved some like uh, sort of seat names around and I, I made myself like sit next to Ev hit it off with him. He ended up becoming an, a sort of mentor of mine. I gave him advisory shares in, in that first company. Uh, he didn't end up inviting me out, but I learned about Y Combinator one day just by Googling like startup mistakes. So then I applied to Y Combinator. We got in, I think we were the first international company they funded. And it, it was funny because Paul Graham, when he saw my cap table, he saw that Ev Williams had some shares he just assumed Ev had invested in us. And, and then he was like, oh, if Ev's invested in you, then like, I definitely want to invest in you. And then that, that was the impetus to just move out to San Francisco. And, you know, I kind of got lucky because I'd actually given those shares to Ev for free um, <laughs> for, for being an advisor. And, and yeah. he did help a lot. And yeah, and then so it was January 2007, just packed my bags and came to San Francisco. Awesome. So now I want to talk about the endpoint of Automatic where it's sold for, uh, I think, a good, decent bit, right? Considering that you'd only been in the entrepreneurship world for a few years. So what was that experience like for you and your fellow co-founders being relatively young at the time? It was, it was exciting. I'm not going to deny that. Um, you know, I, I've said this before sometimes, but like growing up, I did have a bit of a goal of like financial independence. Um, like I had had a bit of a financially insecure upbringing. Um, and so early on, I was like, I just want to make money. I want to take care of my family. So when I got this opportunity to sell the company and to make some cash, and then I was like, oh, I can pay off my mom's mortgage. And I ended up buying my, my mom and sister, my sister, a house that they, they live out of now in Vancouver. It was great. In hindsight, you know, the deal that we took probably wasn't the best one. We actually had a term sheet from Facebook, uh, to be their second ever acquisition. And 
at, it was around the time that Facebook was launching their platform and we built this marketplace thing. We were going to do like class, classifieds on Facebook. Um, and then, yeah, it was, it was like, I remember the first time we got interest and, you know, you kind of got excited and then it was like, oh, it's real. Then we had to do all these interviews and all this negotiating. And we were way out of our depth in terms of the negotiations. Like if you're up against like Facebook's corp dev, it was Dan Rose actually uh, at the time and other people. But then, you know, Chris Sucker was one of our investors and then he helped us negotiate it. And he'd been on, he'd been at Google doing a whole bunch of acquisitions. So it was cool. I think, I think, you know, getting, getting a little bit of that capital early on in life just helped me a lot. Um, and it, it gave me a lot of safety and security on a pure sort of, if I was trying to maximize the value, um, we probably would have taken a, taken a different deal. But for what we had built, the time we'd spent doing it, coming out to San Francisco, we were, we were all really happy with it. Awesome. So now I want to jump over, and I know you skipped entrepreneurship for a few years in the middle, but I sort of want to fast forward over that. And I want to get to the, rec- the most recent company you've launched, which is Zeus, right? So I'm curious. So at the launch time of Zeus, how did you implement previous lessons from the startups that you had founded and use those to sort of implement a better launch process for Zeus? Yeah, I think, I think the big one for me was this idea of like finding product market fit and, and then also really emphasizing on which channels I would use to acquire customers. So just before Zeus for three or four years, you know, we'd worked on a few apps and a few different ideas and they were all having like sort of moderate levels of success, but not the kind of sort of success or impact that I wanted. So in my entrepreneurial journey, I remember early on the advice used to be the idea doesn't matter. It's all about the execution. And I'm sort of now in the camp of, I think honestly, the idea matters so, so, so much, like 90% of it. And I would rather people take a year cycling through 12 ideas or 20 ideas or two or three years until you really get that idea that's going to work. Because once it works and you get that product market fit, then all of the other problems, you can kind of solve them. Like all the challenges you get with scaling a company and, and, and you know, all the, all the rest of it, they're, they're less hard problems than actually finding product market fit. So I think that was one of the early things with Zeus where I was like, oh my God, I've, I've developed something that a lot of people who own homes on the real estate side want. And then from the resident side, uh, people who want to live in Zeus, like they really want this as well. So I think that was one of my key things. And then also like not, not spending too much money on cu- customer acquisition. Um, I think it's very easy for startups. You raise a bunch of money, you throw it on Facebook ads or Google ads. The constraint I gave my team, I mean, we, I think we got to almost maybe a hundred employees uh, and we only had one person working in, working in marketing. Um, Cause I, I wanted wow. to make sure that like uh, we were finding organic ways to grow or through word of mouth and referrals. So I think that was the other thing as well, where it's like, I want this thing to be able to grow without just pumping money on, on sort of marketing dollars. Awesome. So now um, the next thing along your entrepreneurial journey that I'm very curious about is I know you've been to Y Combinator, what, three times, right? For each of your companies or was it two? Uh, sorry. It's two. It's two. Okay. It's two. Yeah. Gotcha. So um, every founder that I've talked to so far that has gone to YC has been like, YC was 
an absolutely like amazing experience. I learned so much. And so I'm curious for you, because I think you're one of the earliest people that I've talked to. You were in like, what, the fifth or sixth batch of YC, right? It was the fourth um, batch, yeah. No, the fourth batch. Wow. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, the fourth batch, it was interesting because YC wasn't the giant that it is today. Not many people have heard of, had heard of it. Um, in fact, like, you know, when I was in San Francisco at the time and people say, what brought you out here or whatever, I'd always have to give a big explanation about what YC is and so on. Um, and then it was small. I think there were 13 companies in our batch. And at the time, 13 seemed like a lot because I think the first batch was like five companies or maybe it was eight, can't remember. And, um, and yeah, it was small and intimate and we'd have these weekly dinners and, you know, everyone would be walking around with their laptops and you try and get some time with Paul Graham and show him what you'd built. And it really was, you know, two guys in an idea kind of a vibe. I think it's grown beyond that now. And, you know, Demo Day got its name because you used to demo whatever prototype you'd built. Now Demo Day is maybe a little bit more like a, like a pitch day. Um, so, I mean, it definitely had something about it in that 2007 time, like the speakers that would come um, and like just Paul Graham's energy and like mentorship to all of these founders. It was pretty exceptional. You could tell within the founder community, any founder that had been through YC felt a lot of affinity towards it because Paul Graham, again, I think his take was, it was almost like he was backing the underdog, um, you know, the, the yeah. college kids who don't have a ton of credentials or they're not MBAs or this, that and the other. Um, and then it, it, it was definitely fun and enjoyable, but, you know, very different scale to it is to what it is now. And you could all fit in this one small room and there were chairs lining out, uh, lined out and you just, you know, open up your laptop and do a demo. Awesome. That's very cool, actually. Um, compared to what I've heard about other companies going to YC. But yeah, so now I want to move to more of present day, what you're doing with Zeus. And so I'm assuming, and I've seen you write about this a little bit too, COVID probably had a huge hit on Zeus, right? Because the market for Zeus, corporate housing just wasn't being used as much. So can you tell me a little bit about that story, what you learned from there, how you pivoted, that sort of stuff? Yeah, so so to set the scene, with, with Zeus, we've pretty much been growing three to four X year over year since we started. Revenue was, you know, growing at a good clip. And 2020 was going to be the year that we were going to break like 100 million plus revenue numbers. We were going to become an international company. We were expanding to all these other metros. And we'd, we, in 2019, raised this $55 million Series B. Airbnb had invested in us. And it really was a case of when the pandemic hit, it was like all of those plans go out the window. Um, you know, international travel, which is about a third of our business, people coming to the US, that went to zero. A lot of the business travel and corporate travel, like we, uh, Facebook is one of our large clients, that went to zero. And then just like even to protect our own staff who, you know, we have a property management um, component, like we had to like do things to ensure employee safety. So we had to like cut back on all of that stuff. And I was planning to raise the next round of funding and that wasn't happening. So we, we sort of shifted into this, um, I'm gonna call it harvest mode or profitability mode, where it's like, okay, everything that we have now, let's stabilize this, let's make this work. I unfortunately had to do layoffs. I'd never done them before in my career. And so we went from maybe 250 employees down to about, I think it was 95 to 100. Oh, wow. and, and so the majority of the company, and that was really hard to do, of course, in the middle of a pandemic. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, if I was looking for a silver lining, I would say that we're a stronger company for it. You know, adversity does, does create that resilience. Um, and I think the worst of it is behind us now. Thankfully, we were able to find new sources of demand, you know, like healthcare workers who are traveling or students who were displaced from university and other industries like um, infrastructure and construction, they were still, um, you know, operating. So we diversified our demand base, we, we cut our costs, we, we, we basically um, started adding like third party inventory to cover markets like Miami and Austin and Nashville, where we started seeing demand. So I think it was just a, it was almost like an education of I'd experienced blitzscaling and what it feels like to just have a thing that grows and, you know, it's up and to the right and you hire lots of people and then blitz descaling of like, oh my God, I don't even know if we're going to survive this and we've got to, you know, shrink um, uh, by over 50%. And so I, I had this like compressed education in, in the period of two years. Um, but we're, we're through that now and we're, you know, we've been having... 87% occupancy plus for the last five or six months. And I think we're in a good spot for 2021. Awesome. Um, wow, it's actually really cool how you had to like do the whole change, move to other markets, stuff like that. Um, wow. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, so now the final three questions that I have for everyone, um, this is what I'm going to ask you now as we come to the end of our time together. The first one is, what is something that you wish you had known when you were first starting out with, I don't know, college, college education, any of your companies, um, a specific point in the company, any of that? Yeah, so, so here's one. Um, I think when you have a long-term horizon, right, if you're sort of operating on a 10-year timescale, maybe even longer in some cases, maybe like two decades, 20-year timescale, it gives you a lot of advantages and sort of leverage points in what you're trying to achieve that just don't exist when you're operating on a shorter timescale of say one year or three years. And um, I think it can just be like a real, a real asset, like almost any kind of plan that you put together, if you're looking to achieve it over like two decades, I really, really think you can because um, just how you start making decisions and, and like allocating your time and all of that, it, it's geared towards this larger goal. And I feel like earlier on in my career, I was a lot more impatient and short-termist. It's like, what can I do by the time I graduate school? What can I do within the first few years out of school? What can I do by the time I'm 30? And or what can I do in the first few years of this company? And um, yeah, so if I could go back in time and give myself some advice, it's like, hey, actually be patient and, you know, there is, you're going to have a long career and a lot of time to work. Um, pick something that might take a slightly longer time period and you'll be able to make that much more uh, of an impact and have that much more leverage. And yeah, I think that was one of the, one of the things I, I wish I could tell myself at an earlier age. Got it. So playing off of that, if you were a teenager during everything going on, COVID, right, mm -hmm. um, what would you build or how would you make money? I think at, if I was a teenager or I'm talking to a teenager, I would put making money as maybe the secondary goal. I think the mm -hmm. primary goal is to just follow your curiosity and things that you find interesting. So if that's like coding, if it's something like 
I don't know, cryptocurrency, or it doesn't have to be that. It can be content creation. It could be art. It doesn't, I don't know. There, there could be a wide range, but I think there's, um, there's a lot to just following your interests and your passion and curiosity. And I'd say as a teenager, even actually spending time getting to know who you are, like introspecting a bit, I think that can pay off. And if you truly know who you are and you're very self-aware and then you follow your interests, I think you're going to find the thing that will create some magic in your life. Um, I would recommend for your listeners to read Paul Graham's last essay. I think it was called um, What I Worked On. And unlike a lot of his other essays, which maybe, you know, he's making an argument or making a point or something, this one is almost just like a narration of him, you know, from college, uh, being a teenager through college, through like pursuing becoming art and becoming a painter and going to Italy to doing his first startup and then how he created Y Combinator. And it's kind of like a beautiful story that illustrates, um, I think that thing that Steve Jobs said about, you can't connect the dots going forward. You can only sort of do it backwards. So to a teenager, I would say, follow your interests. And um, I think uh, Patrick Collison also has a good essay about what I would do in my teen years. Um, it's a co-founder of Stripe and he was my co-founder on my first company, Optimatic. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, pursue money second, pursue your interests first. Awesome. Awesome. So final question is just what's your favorite number and uh, how did that come to be your favorite number? <laughs> my favorite number? I'm going to say four. Um, and I think probably it was, it was maybe just like superstition or someone just told me early when I was, uh, when I was younger that um, this number is lucky for me. Um, you know, if I wanted to give a slightly different answer, I think there's this, you know, the mathematician Ramunajan, I think he gave, yeah. he answered with the numbers, is it 1729? And it's the only number that can be expressed as the sum of two cubes or something like that. But um, it was an interesting number, but my, my answer was four. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, thank you for answering that question. I think that brings us to uh, a really nice close point uh, for the podcast. So yeah, I wanted to thank you so much again for taking the time to meet with me. Cool, thank you very much. It was my pleasure.